Welcome to Charting the Course, a podcast from Full Sail Capital. We're a registered investment advisory firm committed to helping clients grow and manage generational wealth. We do this by focusing on integrity, competency, and transparency each and every day. No matter where you find yourself on the investing journey, our hope is that these conversations, stories, and interviews can empower and equip all investors with fresh insight and perspective on the capital markets. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Well, welcome back. We are here in studio. I've got George Colmia with me. We are picking up where we left off the last episode. We're going to hit on the second part, the number six through 10 of the major changes that have been impacting or impacted investors over the past 40 years. And uh, so George is back with me today, and we're going to start here at number six. Uh, But just real quick, if you don't understand what we're talking about one through five, then go back and listen to the first part of this conversation where we go through the, the, the top five. George, thanks for being with me again. Uh, we'll jump right back in here to number six, the uh, financial crises, I guess, if you want to call it that. We've had several. And I think the, uh, the bad news is we've had these financial crises. The good news, I think, is that a lot of investors have learned how to deal with them. Yeah. We've learned that uh, we all know the stock market is a roller coaster. All sorts of investing is a roller coaster, and those who get hurt are the ones who top off. I think people have learned that. So having been in the business since 83, right? of course, the one that stands out the most to me is Black Monday in, in 1987, October 19th, when the market was down 22% in one day, and I want that to sink in. Yeah, I don't think people understand yeah. That 22% in one day is is almost unfathomable. Yeah, it is. And we, we thought, many people thought, the world is coming to an end. I mean, the financial world is about to end. The uh, economic value of our market just dropped by a fifth. I mean, it's just even sitting here talking about it. And that was, you know, it already dropped a little bit, and then it really dropped. And it was a, uh, people didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. I've been in the business now for four years. It hits me like a ton of bricks. I didn't have any money at the time, so it didn't matter to me. We had clients, though, that that's where I learned from some clients who they were in the markets in the right amounts, and they weren't forced out of the markets. And we also had some clients that were just scared to death, didn't know what to do, and they got out. Got out. But 22% in one day is what ushered in a lot of different circuit breakers now. Now markets can't move that far in a day. Things like that that I think protect the investors some more. Which I think definitely kicked in in the next two major events, most likely, which would have been the tech bubble, the dot-com burst, and then the financial crisis. In, right, in 2000, 2008, 2009. Yeah. You would have to think some of those stops that we learned, some of those, or some of the lessons we learned in 87 helped make those later two events not as impactful. I mean, I think they were impactful, but maybe not as detrimental in that one single day, to your point. Right. Right? Well, you know, and it was so different. You see, some things are caused by bubbles, but some things aren't. So in 87, you know, I, I didn't perceive, I don't think anybody really perceived a bubble that burst. Right. Uh, but markets changed violently. Other times, Y2K, I mean, people, we had all that dot-com move in the late 90s, yep. people valuing stocks by the wrong metrics. You know, that one, you could kind of see that one coming. And then uh, 08, 09, a little bit early, but not early enough that we could see that one happening. But these bubbles have been and will be around forever. The story I read was in the, the book, Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds by Charles McKay. He writes about the tulip bubble, the tulip mania in the 1600s in Holland. Okay. The bubble was so large, he bought one tulip bulb for his, 
he gave his farm for it. He gave his home and his farm for this tulip bulb. Oh, my goodness. Um, and it was, I think, that had to have been the formation of the, the phrase, the greater fool theory. Yeah. There's so many things in investing today that are built on the greater fool theory, and most bubbles to some degree are. I don't necessarily buy into the stock market being too high as a bubble, but some probably could Maybe, sure. claim that. Yeah. But uh, there will always be bubbles. We'll find them in other places. Well, and there's going to be significant corrections. I mean, we, we sit here in 2023 coming off a year where we had a, in our opinion, a very normal market correction. We did. Actually, it was a little bit softer. If you remember in our, in our team meeting, first team meeting in 2022 with the investment team, they said that the previous 10 years, the stock, the SP 500 had been up 16% per year on average for the previous 10 years. We all knew that. We all didn't think it was going to continue, but you know, again, you're going to do your allocations the way you should do your allocations. So in 2022, in effect, we gave back one year. It's great. Yeah. It's a great way to look at it. Gave back one year out of the 10. Yeah. We're probably due to give back another year. Don't know when it's going to come. We'll probably do it. Sure. Should. Yeah. Yeah. People don't like to hear me say it, but it makes the market stronger when it happens. Okay. So along the same line, staying along the same topic, how have you helped coach your clients through some of these events? So Black Monday, major market moves through 08 or 09, Black Swan events. What have you been telling the investors? I think you always have a really impactful story that you've developed over your years in the business that you help reassure clients. And I think the fact that you've been in the business for 40 years also helps reassure clients. But what are some things that you feel like was really beneficial for you to learn and then your clients to learn that have been with you? Because you've had some clients that have been with you for many years. I, I do. I'm very, I'm very fortunate in that regard. What have I learned? I've learned that we're always going to have to fight the emotions of fear and greed as investors and even in other facets of our life. We've got to fight those emotions. And I think as an advisor, all we can do to help give some context to what is happening is going to be to the benefit of the client. In 1987, I didn't know what to do. I mean, I just kind of went around in a daze. Whatever I was told to do, I did. I didn't have a clue. But then I saw later in 88, 89, 90, how people who stayed there, matter of fact, I think in 1987, I think the market was actually up that year. After that down day, I think the market was up for the year. But people who stayed there didn't get hurt. And then we saw it in 2000. Mm -hmm. Well, then we had the 91 thing with the Kuwait invasion that was just a real quick, that was nothing. But in 2000, that was kind of significant. But I think people had been given enough of a warning where they knew what might be coming with all those tech stocks doing what they had done. Yeah. 08, 09 was a shocker. I think that was a shocker. The depth of that was a shocker. The depth of that, I think, to a point we talked, we mentioned in, in part one of this conversation was the the speed at which information traveled right. to compare 87 and the news of that day to the multiple days of, or weeks and months of 08, 09, that, that was just every single day flipping on your TV, reading the newspaper. I mean, it was constant it in was. your face. Time. I just, you know, I think that's an interesting dynamic to think about. You know, they, they called it a black swan event for what happened, but it was a time that you think about GE couldn't borrow money. IBM couldn't borrow money. One bank would not loan money to another bank. I mean, that was just a crazy time where of. credit seized up yeah. and we'd never seen that before. So then really, Tyler, in a way, you really couldn't do much, you know, yeah. uh, just stayed where Kinda you were to, yeah. and right out the storm. And again, we learned for probably the fourth time that that's a strategy that works. Don't jump off that roller coaster. Don't what, get off the train. 
What would you say you've seen or qualities you've seen from investors that have that have stayed the course through these events? As you've worked with them, they've stayed steadfast in their understanding that I'm investing for a goal. I'm investing for future generations. What's something that they all had in common? Oh, yeah. I'm so glad you asked that. I hadn't thought about that, but I'd have an answer. Two things. They invest within their comfort zone. So they invest at a level that they can sustain, as Morgan Housel would call it. You have to be able to sustain your investments. Investments need time. Yep. And, and the time for an investment is not necessarily your time. It's going to be the time for the investments. Number one, they do it in a manner that they can sustain the investment. And number two, my best clients have been with me the longest. They don't use a rearview mirror. They don't look back. Yep. I don't hear them say, oh, I wish I had done this instead of that. I don't want to hear it. They make their best decisions they can make the time they make it, and they just go forward. That's what I've learned from my, my best investors, my best clients. Make well-informed decisions, yeah. be confident in them, and then don't second-guess. Don't second-guess, but have the mental liquidity that if things change and someone presents something to you, you should consider that you'll you'll consider changing your mind. Don't let stubbornness cause you to get into a fear That's right. greed situation. That's right. Maybe. Yeah. And it can do it easily. You know, yeah. you heard long ago, you don't want to follow the crowd. Yeah. So you want to, you don't want to be a crowd follower. So if everybody's going left, you want to go right. And if you're going right, you're going to be facing, walking into people who are going to be going the other way. And so if you're really not going to be a crowd follower, if you're going to be that much of a uh, someone who's going to make sure they stay opposite of the crowd, it's a lonely place to be. It is, yeah. And so you'll start looking for reasons and ways to validate your position. And like all of us, I'm as guilty of as anybody. Yeah. You find someone who writes what you think, and you think he's a smart person. Yep. You give someone to follow. You read what you believe. So I think it's better a lot of times to have that uh, unbiased voice. I know it's been better for me yeah. to manage money for me. Uh, it just it's, takes that emotion out of it. Yeah, They see the bigger picture better than I do. Oh, for sure. Th- than I do for myself. I see it well for my clients, but it's harder when you start feeling for yourself oh, yeah. sometimes. Okay. I knew we could spend some time there. Let's, let's go to seven. And that's just the emergence of ESG investing, social governance. So what have you seen there? How have you, maybe what's your approach there? How do you handle that with clients? Because for you and I sitting at this table in our firm, we don't have a ESG model, so to speak. It's hard to do when we're investing the way we do, which is, is which is index ETFs and all that stuff. Well, and we've also I had some clients do that really. They started doing that about ten years ago. The sin stocks, avoiding guns, alcohol, cigarettes, yep. Yep. porn, yep, things like that. Now it's pretty hard to avoid sin stocks. Everybody's involved in something out there that someone's not going to like. I mean, the best example I give some people when the sin stock comes up is Coca Cola is in the. S&P 500. So if you own the S&P 500, well, Coca-Cola down the line somewhere owns a tequila company or a beer company yeah. or a distributing company. So it gets really hard to... It does. So are you willing to cut out Coke from your... And I'm, that's just an example. But are you willing to cut that out of your portfolio because of that? And some people are, and I don't, I'm not, we're not here to tell them that they're wrong. It's... No, I think some people think the wrong thing about it though. Okay. Some people think if they're buying that stock, you're going to help that you're company. You're supporting it. And you're not. You're yeah. just going to be able to, you're hedging your bet in a way is what I would tell someone. You know, yeah, you don't like cigarettes, but if someone's going to be smoking it, I'm going to make money off of it. Right, sure. You know? yeah. <laughs> but you're not helping Philip Morris. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't see as much of that anymore. I see some of the younger investors speak of it. I don't, I think a lot of them need to be educated on what that really means and what it doesn't mean. Well, and 
again, if if you're investing for performance and you're investing for long-term returns, I should say, the, the data just, just doesn't back up the ESG funds being over outperformers. But again, I guess to your point, I don't think people may be necessarily looking at it to be an outperformer. They're looking for it to align better with their interests. So I think you're right. To, to line this up with our conversation, when did you see that start to come into play? I'd say about 12 years ago, I'm guessing 12, 15 years ago. And it was talked about a lot there for a while mm-hmm. and then it died down mm-hmm. until about it's kicked up again. A couple, what, a couple years ago, yeah, two, probably three, four years yeah. ago. I think it's generational. I, I think there are, there are people within the generation that kind of like that. And, and, and now it's really become more social. It's, it's highly, highly centralized in the social aspect, I think. So companies that support uh-huh. this or that, or don't support this or don't support that. That's, that's where I've seen it from my generation. And I think it's familial. Yeah. I think if you see it in the parents, you're going yeah. to see it from the kids. It's, it's funny how that passes on. Uh-huh. So, Okay, another, oh man, gosh, this is another great one. The increase in passive investing. Wow, wow. wow. And again, we, we hit on it, uh, I believe it would have been number four in just the changes in investment, investment strategy and, and even probably number one in, in that first part of our conversation is how technology is advanced. But let's spend some time here, George, because I think you really have the ability to speak into, yes, the increase in the attractiveness of passive investing. But when you moved to full cell in, in 18, like this was a big deal. And we, we actually talked about this yesterday in our, in our meeting here at the office, but this was a big, this is a big deal. We were fortunate, first of all, that I, I had always been active, always been individual stocks and active more than I had been mutual funds. Okay. I had really not been a big believer in ETFs. However, I had started doing some ETFs with some clients that made some sense. Okay. But when I came to full sale and walk in the door and Zach shows me, I told him all of our managers and funds we use, and he did his little spreadsheet that showed me how 80% of them had not kept up with their benchmarks. So we decided, you know, I needed to find a way to transition clients. Well, we were blessed that in December of 2018, three months after we got here, we had a market sell-off. So we were able to yeah. transition our accounts, generally taking some losses that we like to take. And we took some losses, transitioned our accounts from individual stocks to uh, ETFs to our full sales strategy. So it worked out beautiful. So you're you're talking to a guy that has made the change. I, as I've said it before, I'm like a reform center in church. I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna sing the song. I'm going to sing it loud. I don't have a good voice, but I'm going to sing it. Uh, I think that I love that the, the client I met with the client today who was with me for eight, 10 years at, at before. And we talked about the ease of what we do now. We know if the market's up, our accounts will be up. Probably if the market's down, our accounts will be down probably, but there's no, well, what this guy do that made that happen? You know, it's just going to be right there in line with the market. It just makes our lives easier, softer, less volatile, so for me, it helps a lot the way we do it here. That's probably more of a statement on the strategy at full sale as much as it is passive. But I think that passive has a great role to play in a lot of clients' portfolios if you know how to do it, what to pick, what not to pick, and so on. There's some traps there too, I think. Well, and I think what we have to clarify at times, and I had to I had to wrap my head around it when I when I moved over here as well. Were you active before or I was a mix. So I definitely had I was didn't have really any individual stocks unless it was a, a local, you know, you'd get your local hot tip, right? Sure. That that was gonna do well. And some of them did. I mean I think back to when I started hearing about Paycom or early days of 
Continental, Hot Days at Chesapeake. I mean, sure. you name it. But I did have a big mix. I was probably 50-50 of active mutual funds based on, you know, international was always active. And I could do domestic S&P 500 ETF and I could do an active small. So you were in and out. You're trying to tip your toe on both, both sides. But I think what's what I had to understand was that we're, we're not coming over here and just buying a couple index funds and then never looking at it. No. I don't think people really ever be able to understand the day-to-day work that gets done by our investment team. That is, that's the active side. So I've had to help educate our clients, my clients on, we're not, this is not a passive shop. We're just using a passive vehicle to gain access to the market, but we're also not going to overweight or underweight you know, by a very large percentage one way or the other. And that's because that's where I think you get into truly active management. But I don't know. I, I, do. I, I just I don't know if you had some thoughts there on oh. how you explain to people, this is the strategy we use, but it is not a passive approach. In 2022, yeah. we had a client that saw his account value going down and thought we weren't doing diddly to manage that account. What are we doing? We're not earning our keep. How can that account keep going down like that? And uh, so we had him come into the office. I told him, you don't think we're doing anything? Come in, let me show you what it is we do. I said, first of all, I said, I don't do anything, but these guys back here do. And I want to show what what they do. So he came in, we took him back there, and Zach showed him what we do. And he was totally blown away by it. So much so that he knows he's in the right place. This guy's been with me for almost 30 years. A long time. But he was calling the question last year because of what the market was doing. But now he sees what we do and the disadvantage that investors, that individual investors have today compared to what someone like Zach or any CFA has. They all have, they're a step ahead with being able to ascertain the good stuff out of the information flow that's out there for everybody. I mean, I think in that conversation, Zach was able to pull up in Bloomberg and he pulled up some data point of some stock that he had bought of, a, had bought. of a stock that he, that the client had bought and how it, I think it was a cargo. I, I can't remember. It was specifically, ship cargo. But he pulled up the ship. He could, yeah. he could see the data of the ship, there were four of the ships. cargo and four ships. And he showed him each ship and where it had been and the freight rates it had earned for the last 15 trips. I mean, it was amazing what he showed. And I think his point was I can get the data. I can go out here and make a call on that stock because of all this data I have. But Zach is quick to tell you that's a losing game because I can't predict where that market's going to go. Right. Uh, anyway, that interesting. That was an interesting. So I, story. I think that I think that passive investing is is uh, supported by stories like that. Yeah. I mean, why go take that single stock risk? When you can do something passively and and just eliminate that one area of risk. And we may own that same stock. We're just going to own it at a fraction of percentage now instead of... Own all those competitors too. Number nine here as we get close to wrapping up, uh, regulatory changes. Uh, Man, there have been a handful. You and I have both seen a lot. And I think the one that... I think all of it had to do with the transparency and protecting investors. And so as you look back, what have you seen maybe be the most impactful regulatory changes Where'd they get it right? Where'd they go too far? Where would you land on on this topic? Well, in our view, you cannot have enough transparency. You can't have too much transparency. At previous firms, I remember having, I was on a uh, on the beta team for a performance report at a previous firm. I don't okay. want to see which one was. Yep. I had to argue with the entire team to show 
fees the client's paying. On the report. Some, some of these are, are ERISA plans. They've got to know what they're paying, but they didn't want, but others didn't want to show that. I think transparency has to be out there, and I think that's been a big help. And I think some of the things that have happened in, uh, oh, maybe in the 08, 09 area where now we have stronger regulations, we have about knowing our customers and tying in customers and making doing some things that our customers don't like, having to have right. – Photo IDs and things like that. Yeah, I mean, there's there's things good. that are annoying, but it does. It helps. I mean, when we get a wire request, we, yeah, regulatory or not, we're going to call that client. We're going to verify they sent that email or if they text us. That's a whole other thing we've had to deal with is regula- regulations on texting. That's right. I don't like that regulation on texting. Most of my clients don't text very much about business stuff, but to have to archive them is a special challenge. Yeah. And again, if it's investment related, that's what they're looking at. That's what they're talking about. I have, we have clients that, you know, we're friends with and we're texting. Right. That's, that's not what they're, they're getting at, but it's been a, that's a whole nother regulation they've, they've laid down. But I think that the new regs, even though we hate them because we have to adhere, adhere to, to them. them. I think they've really been best for the clients. I was going to ask, as you looked, have, do you feel like it's been a benefit to I the investor? Do. I mean, you know, with what, particularly in today's world, with all the scams and phishing and all that stuff going on, we have to be very careful. And so I like what we're doing here. It, it, always, it always fascinates me, though, that there's still certain segments of our industry that can charge fees or commissions that just get buried. I know it. Um, but if they disclose them on some 50-page document, then it's fine. And I, we don't need to get into what specific industries no. those are or segments, but they're out there. So, again, I just think the more we can educate and protect investors, the better. And I think that's – I think you hit the nail on the head there. So, okay, as we wrap up here with uh, part two, number 10 is just demographic changes. You yourself, your investors have observed really – the demographic shift and maybe I don't know if you're you're going to just the a the average age of investor because I think that's gotten a lot younger. I just think over time more investors are getting into the market at a younger earlier. age earlier. But what have how have you seen that demographic shift or change impact you and what did you take from it? A couple of things. I do see what you're saying there where people are getting involved investing earlier. The key is that we have to keep them in there. I hope they don't have a bad experience and you know Early, and step yeah. away and start doing the other. I also see that as investors live within their means, as long as they you know, invest wisely, so on and so forth. I'm seeing a lot of clients that started with me 25, 30 years ago, and now their assets continue to grow. And it it's grown such that they probably have no worries. Right. It wasn't because they hit some big lick. It was just because they stayed with their knitting. They stayed there and let the markets work for them over a long period of time. Yep. A Morgan Housel thing about sustaining your investment. Yep. Be there. Average rates of return over long periods of time create incredible results. I think so that's happened to a lot of people my age. We've seen that happen to our portfolios. So I think that the young ones getting more involved now. We need to have them involved. They're going to likely inherit a lot of money, and we've got to have them prepared. I've used the example a lot of times, Tyler, that we would never think about putting our child in a car without driver's education and a license. Right. And yet we're going to let them inherit sometimes a million dollars with no instructions. And, and, uh, and we don't want to no talk sense. about it because we don't want to. Can't talk about money. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And that's a, that's a mistake. We've got to talk about money. Well, and you make you bring up a point too, as clients age, as investors age, their needs change. So their goals, how we communicate, 
their desires for meeting with their investor, that all changes. It does. I think as we incorporate, and I've seen you do this really, really well, is how, we, how as we incorporate the younger generation, if they're educated, then they're much more inclined to be a, a, a beneficial help to mom and dad when they get to a point where, and you mentioned cognitive decline, maybe mom and dad get to a point where they can't make the best decisions if they're in their 80s and 90s. Well, now these kids have been educated at a younger age. We've talked about it, so they understand it. And so they can help make some of those decisions where, to your point earlier, something happens to mom and dad and, and God forbid they pass away. Now this wealth is transferred and there's been no conversations. It is. It's like, That's here's, not be a, here's a car, and but we've never taught you how to drive. That's right. And, you know, and what happens too, Tyler, is as much as we don't want to admit it, as we age, our cognitive abilities decline okay. in different ways for sure. different people, but it's happening. We know it's going to happen. And so we have to, I think, having someone younger like that involved in the know all along the way, not all of a sudden, but just properly prepared, they can add a lot of value, I think, to investment decisions. I think that a lot of people, as we've aged, we as advisors, we have to make sure that we better prepare our clients for them to age. For that stage. Yeah. So we're doing it now by adding fixed income now because we can for clients because we can make something out like, of yeah. it. Little things like that, that can be big things. Kind of to wrap up on this point, George, you've done this for 40 years, and I think there's been probably a time in every couple of years where there was a threat to the advisor. There was there was some new technology that was going to phase us out. There was the robo-advisors. Now there's, you used a uh, AI today, a, a yeah. bard to help write this. Well, AI is going to knock out the advisor. I just wholeheartedly disagree with that. I think there's always going to be a place for that human interaction. Why do you think people value that relationship, that face-to-face -face meeting, that phone call with you over your 40 years? I think it's a combination of... Uh... I hate to say wisdom, but I think they like the experience I've had. I, they can they can lean yeah. on. But I think that we're going to have to uh, we have to develop more of that. Whenever I first heard about Robin Hood and the Betterment and all those, yeah, I've, you know, robo advisors. I saw people in the office get nervous, but most clients they want a solid relationship with someone they trust. That's what they want, and you can't get that out of a robo advisor yeah. or some computer or calling an eight hundred number. Get somebody different each time. You have to go talk to your old give them your whole lay of the land again. Yep. So I think I think serious investors will always want that strong personal relationship yep. they can trust. Well, George, this is great. I really appreciate you putting this list together. Um, I'm going to let you kind of close this out before I wrap us up. Two-part conversation here. We've, we've hit on a lot of things. We, we've looked at really just 10 of probably many changes that have really impacted the investor and, and impacted investing. But how would you sum it all up or yeah. how would you put a bow on this conversation? Well, I've seen a lot of changes. We're all going to see more changes, not just in our business, but in everybody's business. There's going to be more disruption everywhere we look. But as technologies and strategies advance, as regulations are added or changed, some areas of investment opportunity are better than others, hotter than others. As our clients' needs change as we get older, we need to do different things to get to different outcomes. I think the one thing that we need to always maintain, the full sale will never change, is our relenting desire to be that deep relationship almost like a family relationship with our clients. If You've got to have that, I think, to get the clients where they want to go. Mm -hmm. So I think as long as we have that, then we'll continue to build those on trust. By the way, we've always done it, doing the right things, the right reasons, for the right people, and that will lead us to the success because that's a win-win for everybody. Oh, no doubt. That's my thought. I couldn't say it any better. So we're going to end there. Thank you all for listening. I 
I hope this was beneficial. If you have any questions or comments or anything we can dive on in more, provide you with information, do not hesitate to reach out. Just go to the website, the info tab, and shoot us uh, a comment. George, thank you so much for thank you. sitting down today. Thank My you pleasure. for your your wisdom and your leadership at Full Sail. Pleasure. We appreciate it, and we'll uh, we'll have you back on soon. We'll see what Bard AI comes up with next. <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> All right. Thanks, George. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's conversation, don't forget to review and subscribe to your preferred podcast platform. Have a great week. All opinions expressed by the host and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Full Sail Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Full Sail may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.